Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. There you go. <laughs> Man, you were dancing around your handbags there. Oh, John, I am introducing you to Italian disco. Don't you say that we don't get uh, weird and wonderful in our musical tastes. Last week we were talking about Mani and shamanic creatures in the 3rd century AD. Now we're down late 70s, early 80s. Italian disco. An extraordinary, extraordinary story about the export of disco from Italy to the rest of the world all through the 70s that we don't know because we don't... Talk to me. Tell me about Tell me that story. So the Italians created this extraordinary culture in disco, right? All through the 1980s. Okay. Yeah. Or, sorry, all through the 1970s. Yes. Uh, most uh, splendidly articulated by a guy called Adriano Celentano. Okay. Google him. He's the dogs. He really is. If you want to see a man in a jumpsuit... In I a love tight, a good jumpsuit. In a tight jumpsuit. I mean, with a Linford Christie-esque package, right? This is my, my boy, Adriano. So an extraordinary thing is there's a direct link between Italian disco from the early 70s and I Feel Love, Donna Summer, 1977. Yeah. And the link is Giorgio Moroder, who's born in Sud Tirol, the Austrian part of Italy. Yeah. Bolsano, all up there, and his Moog modulator and all that sort of stuff, right? But the disco that Moroder loved so much comes from Italy. The Italians were really big into it. And the reason I've now got into it, because A, it's the summer and it just feels like summer music. And B, down here in Croatia, because this part of Dalmatia used to be Italian years and years ago before the Second World War, there is a sort of an Italian influence here which is kind of outsized. You know, they have and they Italian just haven't words. moved on from the 70s yet. Is that what you're nah, saying? No, man, that's the great thing about Croatia. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can live in 1978 uh, <laughs> on the beach here. And it's very, very much so. Sometimes you're listening to music here and you don't like it. It's, what I love is the fact that 
Because we speak English, so much of our literature and culture is mediated by the English language and our music. Whereas mm. when you come into other parts of Europe, particularly in the Med, the culture that's really outsized and really present here is Italian culture. Yeah, Italian music, yeah. Italian literature, Italian everything. And this week, John, we're going to focus the entire podcast not on disco, although oh, it would be quite nice. Come on, Mac. <laughs> it would be quite nice. We're going to focus on Italy because the Italian government has just collapsed. Yes, one. I was reading about this, and this is something that, well, I was, for one, was a little bit shocked at this. That I Draghi, think lots of people were. Yeah, because Draghi was so popular and remains so popular, yet he's out of government. I don't understand. Can you explain this to me? Well, what I'm going to do is we're going to talk to the great Italian, Peter Antonioni, who is, as I've always said, five parts Connemara, five parts <laughs> north of Italy, 100% Broadwater Farm estate. Okay, so that's Peter's one of the, one of the great guys, okay? Uh, economics yeah. lecturer at UCL. And of, of course, with a name like Antonioni, he ain't doing anything except involve himself in Italian and, culture, and By the way, he, he is also the only guy I know. I met him down in Kilconomics. He's the only guy I know with a massive tattoo of Schumpeter on his arm. Of Schumpeter, yeah. No, exactly. He's, a, he's an obsessive about Schumpeter. And he has this, yeah, I know. I mean, most people have like, you know, you know I don't know, some sort of tattoo. So that signifies he's got the face of an obscure Austrian economist on his <laughs> massive one. Yeah, he's a great character. But what I want to talk to, the reason Italy is so important is that, number one, Italy is crucial to the euro. Number two, Italy is crucial to the European bond markets. And number three, Italy is the second largest manufacturing country in Europe bigger than France, smaller than Germany. It's yeah. a huge country that we tend not to appreciate just how big and how significant. It's also a founding member of the European community. I mean, we're talking an extremely interesting country. And the people who brought Draghi down, interestingly, have their roots in deep Italian politics. So the Italian politics of the 60s, 70s, and 80s created these massive divisions in Italy between communists, between right-wingers, between the centrists, between the police force, everything. It's a fascinating story. And the people who are now bringing the likes of Draghi down, the politicians, mm. have their genesis in that period. So what I want to do is talk to Peter, go right back Italian history, and then see what it all means. So you uh, fancy we go to London, we talk to Peter? Absolutely. How are you, Antonioni? Good to see you, man. Good What's to see you again, Williams. What I want to do now, Peter, is England is the country that your mother from Connemara and your dad from Italy emigrated to. What, That's in the, correct. In the 40s, 50s? Um, my mother came in the 1950s, actually not speaking any English. She came to Liverpool and she would say that she still doesn't speak any English as a result. My dad came <laughs> in the 1960s. Right, so you've got an Italian immigrant, an Irish immigrant. They're living together in a rough enough area of London, Haringey, right? Just north of the estate, the Broadwater Farm. We have you, Peter Antonioni, a lovely combination. We're going we're gonna to get deep into Italy, right? I have become fascinated with Italian disco in recent days, right? As John tests to. Yes, I'm indeed. only to Adriano Celentano. It's the whole thing, Peter, right? You and I have talked about Italian disco in the past. Believe it or not, Peter and I will have these conversations at Kilconomics, which will go from Chesterton to Pino D'Angio. 
So basically you go from poetry to disco, right? What is going on in Italy? You are interested in the, what the Italians call the years of lead, okay? Yeah. Period from the late 60s to the late 80s. What I'm looking at is Mario Draghi brought down by a combination of Force Italia, the Northern League, the Five Star Movement, and now these Sons of Italy, this new right-wing movement. Can you tell me the link between the years of lead, what it was, and these deeply, deeply divided movements in Italy that most non-Italians don't see? Okay, so first thing is that Years of Lead is a particularly uh, virulent example of what one academic called polarised pluralism. So I have to give you a, a quick analysis of what was happening there. But basically, Italy has a very democratic and genuinely bicameral system. And the First Republic especially so. Some of that's been wheeled back a bit, but in that First Republic, definitely. Secondly, it has a very, very big party that is not allowed to take part power. And that was the Communist Party. And in the Cold War, Italy was a frontline state. So therefore, the communists could not be allowed into government. I mean, you have to remember, this is the biggest mass communist party in Europe. Okay, even though they're a little different from the other communist parties in Europe, they're still a very big one and they're very scary to the Western alliance. Sure. So consequence of that is that you have a lot of Christian Democrats dominated party uh, coalitions. And because the Christian Democrats don't really face a lot of opposition, they get to behave pretty much as they like. The second aspect of it is that there's a very PR electoral system. There's no 5% threshold. You know, you can form a party just like that. Again, very, very democratic and quite noble in its setup. And what happens is that unlike in Britain, where if there's a faction within a party, they stay within a party, and there's a fight over who gets to control them or not. In Italy, they stay and move into other parties, which leads to small parties having a lot of power in the coalitions. And that, in turn, means that the government has to start handing out things to keep them happy and to keep the governments going. Now, over that period, if you imagine that this is your political context, you've now got two extreme wings, both of whom are happy to move towards violence. Okay, so in 1968, you start off with the hot autumn of a lot of labor protests. A policeman gets killed at one of these events. The police respond by suiciding a man out of, uh, you know, in Italian, suicidato can be a passive participle. One can be suicided. No, he no, what's suicide. this? He was suicided from the top of Milan police station. Okay. And wow. This is, the, this is the story that Dario Foll uses as the uh, introduction to accidental death of an anarchist. Okay, so anyway, you have this period, you have left and right terrorism, you have actors within the state potentially bolstering this, you have the state allegedly following a strategy of tension, which is not to prosecute, even when they have evidence of the terrorists, because the existence of the terrorists can be used as a way of getting control of things. You have very factional parties. You have, you know, all kinds of situations. This was every time we came to Italy, you know, telegiornale would come on. We'd you'd hear the great fanfare. And the very first thing would be, oh, there's been a bombing here. There's been a, an atrocity here. There's been, uh, the word they use is stragismo in Italy. Uh, strage is Italian for massacre. 
So it's the uh, ideology of creating massacres. And this was, so that, us, Peter, so this is, this is a period, and it was called the years of lead, lead meaning from bullets. Well, so yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, lead both con- conveys stagnation and bullet, yeah. Right, so you have this, you know, you've got the Brigada Rossi, we remember Aldo Moro, the Prime Minister, we remember, you know, Getty being kidnapped, all that stuff on the left wing, right? And they're allied with the IRA and the PLO and all that sort of stuff, right? Then we have the right wing, you have these various right wing CIA-supported clandestine groups. I can't Absolutely, remember. Yeah. I think one was called New Order in genuflection to the Salford-based oh, band. I'm not too sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right? So there. So you have these two. There. Then in the middle, you have the state trying to figure out which way to move forward. So you actually have the the essence of a sort of a civil war just Absolutely. constantly. And I don't think many people are aware of this outside Italy. This was a subsumed civil war is basically the best way of I think I would think about it. I mean, Italians don't like the term civil war, but I think if we're gonna apply Anglo terms to it, this is what it this is what it really was. And again, you also have to remember you you know, we've got this multi-party political system, we've got these systems of networks of power around it, we've got the fact that those factions were moving against each other the whole time on the inside of politics whilst this was going on over the outside. And we also have the the very surprising ending of the communists giving up their ideology to support the government and support the state. When did they do this? Uh, the Compromise Historical was in the uh, late 1970s, and it starts to bear fruit in the 1980s. So what you have, so you've got this, it, it's the, the, the kind of cooling off of this civil war. And what I'm trying to get is to the, the, is to the influence of that period on Italian politics now. You also have this extraordinarily dynamic economy. You have the second biggest manufacturer in Europe. Italy is wealthy. The north of Italy is incredibly wealthy at this stage. Things are going quite well in Italy. And... Those people who had their genesis in these rather radical movements, do they re-emerge in different guises now? Because I'm trying to understand who are these parties in Italy? Well, the the thing is that, you, you know, the end of the whole period is the fall of that structure in um, 1992 around the corruption scandals, where eventually they do get Craxi. And Italy... Craxi was uh, the prime minister, was he? He was the prime minister at that time, yeah. And eventually they do, you know, the constitution does change, a new republic is set up, and we have new people. And over that time, we've had governments of technocrats, where a prime minister can get appointed by the president and then have to deal with the deputies that they've they've got around them. We've had uh, governments of scope that have been brought in for limited amounts of scope, of period. The Italian constitution, by the way, allows all of this. It's quite a document. So we have all of these attempted fixes to the situation. But there's two big problems, I think. Number one, you know, Italy's going reasonably well, but you've got to remember it's a resource-poor society. It's a net energy importer, all the rest of it. So in the 70s, those energy prices, it caused very big problems in Italy and very big distortions in Italy anyway. So you have that. And then secondly, Italy's competitiveness internationally over the period of the post-war economic boom. I mean, I think really I'm not distorting things too much by saying that every time Italy became uncompetitive, the government just added an extra zero to the lira. And it worked. And it worked. It was a it was an export-led economy. Yeah. But again, Italy has that big divide between 
a hyper-productive sector and some really, really unproductive sectors as well. Now, some of those are things that Italians will no way change. And, you know, and in fact, British people who go to Italy, they're the first things they love. I mean, those small businesses that Italy has, the fact that you go through, uh, you know, a town centre and, you know, you've got the same kind of family-run establishments that everybody is drinking their coffee at, you know, rather than chains of Starbucks, etc. Precisely. Those kind of things that we love, they're also quite unproductive in terms of the economy as a whole. So Italy has that problem. So then Italy goes on the euro, and that rules out the devaluation strategy ever again. So from that period onwards, Italy's really been accommodating to a monetary policy that's been set for it. Now, again, despite this, Italy has hyper-productive companies. I mean, you go anywhere around the north and look at, you know, look, for example, at the, at the tool-making industry, you know, yeah. these small and medium-sized... design, like, cars, you know, it's extraordinary. It, absolutely it's high-end manufacture. I mean, um, you know, Italian contribution to the Eurofighter and the Airbus are, are, are substantial as well. But also so, Italian fashion, the value added they create, they had this amazing garment industry that they decided, look, we're going to actually, not only are we going to have a garment industry, but we're actually going to add value. We're going to be expert at branding and advertising, all these, I mean, they're way out there in terms of their commercial nous. Well, yes. I mean, again, it is that there are, that there is an export led and very, very productive sector that does really, really well. And there is a long tail like Britain, in fact, of of companies that are not the most productive. So, so that's the problem the the economy has. The problem the party system has is that really there's been a dealignment from anybody's ideology. There's a division between the north and south of the country that still exists. So, hence you've got the Lega Nord and their um, desire to have this uh, mythical Republic of Padania. In the Po Valley, you know, there, you have that as well, and that that coincides with also a very solidarity based view, and these kind of bash up against each other in ideological terms, and that's really led to people kind of saying, "Well, look, is there anyone who gets this country moving, who does these things, who takes those necessary decisions?" And the answer is, you can't simply take those decisions. Remember, you know, if we're going to say symmetrical tragedies, you know, Italy's and uh, and Britain's are, are are symmetrically opposite to each other. In Britain, there's a concentration of power that does nobody any good. In Italy, there's a dispersion of power along along coalitions that's often very difficult to operate in. So, tell me about the people who mugged Mario Draghi. So, Mario Draghi emerges as originally an economics professor from Florence. Macroeconomic, I think monetary economics professor. He is a bit of a, a a high flyer. He does the Italian. He does the Italian civil service, Ministry of Finance. He does Goldman Sachs. He then goes into the ECB. He then becomes prime minister. I mean, this is this is the ultimate technocratic player. Okay, how does he end up? And not only technocratic, but also a real political animal. How does he end up getting mugged last weekend? He ends up getting mugged because he's the other side have the numbers. That's and it. He does, and he doesn't have a power base. He doesn't have a power base. You know, this is, this is the problem. I think there's a really wider point about 
technocratic government and its problems that I think applies to both Britain and Italy as well in this, and I think should be taken more seriously as a warning rather than just writing people off as populists. Which I, is, I actually agree with you. Let's, let's go down this road. Which is the technocratic government gets captured by its own machinery. The idea is that you think that you, if you put an expert in who is going to be able to take these decisions on the basis of expertise, then the right decision will be taken. Firstly, right decision is actually a very difficult thing to pin down and define. It includes the decision that will, people can live with. So that, that's obviously a limitation that the technocrat is unencumbered by having to take that, that step of it. Sure. Secondly, it locates power away from the democratic parts of power. And I think that this is something that actually lies a lot behind the Brexit vote as well, that it's really that the EU was a misdiagnosis of a process which was technocraticizing government. And actually, if we looked at where it, the, the locus of this really was in Britain, it's with the government that you interact with, which is local government, not, not far away in Brussels. So this problem of the person you elect not having the power or ability to confront the government machine when it's running away and doing its own thing, is also, it's the symmetric problem. And the problem with coalitions like Italy has is that it can lead to an operation that's just not really controlled by anyone or put under democratic oversight by anyone. I mean, the bizarre thing is, I tend to agree with you, despite the fact being educated as a technocrat years ago, and for many, many years thinking, well, why just don't they just get an economist to run this or this sort of thing to run this? Right? Then you realize that politics is messy. It's evolutionary. It has to have some link to the people or it becomes far too remote. And you can get the dictatorship of the technocracy and you can get this extraordinary cleavage between the people and the state. And for many, many years in the 80s, in particular 90s, when Ireland was being very, very badly managed, and it really was being very, very badly managed by various populist parties. One fella from Fine Gael, a guy called Gareth Fitzgerald, who pretended not to be a populist, was actually the most populist. And the other oh, fellow, yeah. at, least, at least Charlie Ahi had the decency to be proper populist. If you know what I mean? Like he, he did buy the Charvet shirts and own an island and go to dinner and all that sort of carry on. But there was a sense of, wow, why can't we just get technocrats? But I agree with you completely that technocracy, to get back to our original idea is Ballardian in its terror and could be. It, well, it can be, yes. The necessity is that there is some kind of buy-in to, to decisions in a democratic society. That's really, when you, when you get down to it, we talk about democracy in so many different ways as process, as ideal, etc., etc. My really biggest problem with technocracy is that it's a confusion between the concepts of government and management. Management is for situations where you give up your liberty because somebody is paying you. Government is for situations where you pay someone to keep your liberty. I think on that distinction between government and management, I think we will finish there. Peter, now that I've discussed this, Lee, I'm going to go back to my recent obsession of Italian disco in the 1970s. Uh, maybe you might give me one or two recommendations for the outro. Dance moves, maybe. Dance moves? Oh, I, oh, I'm going to just give you one, which is uh, Raffaella Carrà, Rumore, 
which is the greatest thing you will ever hear in your life. Oh. <laughs> I mean, no, really, this is an absolute banger and uh, a recommendation you watch the video because it shows the Italian genius for presentation, in this case in choreography, just as a, an absolutely amazing thing. All right, Peter Antonioni, Raffaella Cara. I can't imagine anything better than Rumore Cara. on the outro. Pete, take care. Talk to you soon, man. Thank you very much, Thanks, Peter. All the best. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Peter is the man. Disco king there himself. Well, you know. <laughs> he could be a good run for your money, Mike. Well, I'm telling you, so he, the thing is, if he's, he's a cage fighter as well. So you have cage fighting and disco and economics yeah. in the Wood podcast. I mean. But it's, but it's interesting what, what he was saying there about the difference between kind of government and management. And he, he spoke earlier on about this kind of, I think the term he used was subdued civil war going on in, in Italy. Italy. That's been going on for, for years, like forever. I, I, I'm really surprised at that. Like, I didn't realize there was so much stuff going on in Italy. I think that's, that's again, it comes back to, to language. I think the subdued civil war was that period that they call the years of lead up until the early 90s. I think what they've done now is an accommodation. But what is fascinating, John, is the origins of all the various parties comes from that subdued civil war period. And if you've ever sat down with Italians when they start to talk politics, I mean, it's really deep and it's proper left-right yeah. stuff. I remember when I was very first in Italy years ago, I remember in every village they had a place called Casa di Popolo, which is the people's house, which is basically like a canteen run by the Communist Party. And you go in and have a pizza and right. a beer and a glass of wine for, for half nothing. Now that Italy, I think, has, has gone. But what, what remains is this extraordinary friction between the executive, i.e. the technocrats, the draggies of this world, and yeah. the populari, the populists, right? And if you go all the way back to, to history, this is more or less the huge conflict at the heart of all societies. Like, are you ruled by the almost 
the scribe class and the warrior class, or are you ruled by democracy? There was a uh, there was a, a revolution, John, in Rome by the brothers Gracchi, who re- who basically decided that people were on the side of the emperor, and they tried to take away the senate. Right? Yeah. And all these things were going on all the time, and what you find in Italy, I think, is just that that sense of who is governing us is much more acute because of its flexible constitution, because of its inherent democracy, because of the fact that the democracy is very vibrant. I'll just leave you with one idea. But it's it's constantly flip-flopping, though, and governments don't last very long. So, 19 months is the average. 19 months. Wow. Do they never know? When was the last government that actually had a full term? 19 months is a full term. (laughs) <laughs> that's enough. You know what I mean? So, so they, they, there's it's the same amount of time as elephants do... get pregnant, John. <laughs> but how do they actually put long-term plans and long-term policies together if they're not lasting and well, long enough to actually see them through? This is the very interesting thing, you know, because if you come from the tradition, the absolutist tradition of politics and economics, let's say the American and British tradition, which tend to be almost strong men, like you get a majority, you run the whole thing, you're Mm. the boss, right? And then you take our tradition and the Italian tradition, which is all these coalitions. You would think that the more fragile society is the society that has a government that consistently runs its course after 19 months and stops, right? You'd think that that is endemic fragility. But actually, and Nassim Taleb makes this point in one of his books, Anti-Fragile, is that that society becomes unbelievably resilient because it's constantly changing. It's this sort of vocal, rumbustious democracy, which is always reinventing itself. It's always changing the parameters, et cetera. And it's interesting, like if you look at Britain, the country that's at risk of falling apart with Scottish nationalism is the country with the one-party government, Britain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The country that has continued to muddle through is the country with the 15-month coalitions, Italy. The coalitions actually make you strong because what coalitions do is they make you compromise all the time. And we all know in life that actually compromise is an incredible strength to be able to compromise and to be able to say, okay, maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I'll adjust. Maybe I'll tinker around. So I would say that, yes, the Italians are going into an election in September. Yes, there will be a new government. And no, nothing will change. And just before you go, we've started a new weekly Q&A exclusive for our Patreon supporters. Here's a clip from one of this week's questions. Colin's absolutely right. Equal burden sharing. It just strikes me, Colin, that there is an obvious dilemma here, which is the places in the world that need people don't have people and the places in the world that need capital don't have capital. So we have a choice. Either we have mass immigration of poor people to rich countries, which in and of itself creates a huge political backlash, or we have migration of capital from rich countries to poor countries, which prevents immigration and allows them to see their own companies in their own regions. We're going to have to figure this one out. We're going to have to find a way. Bretton Woods was an example But Bretton Woods, as you know, came after a major, major global war. Hopefully that's not on the horizon, like the World War III scenario. But clearly, 
clearly there is going to have to be some mechanism to get capital to the poor parts of the world. I'm not too sure how that's going to end up, but it needs to be done. Otherwise, we get mass, mass immigration. And Western countries don't want that. So if you have any questions or queries, and if you like what you hear and would like to join the gang on Patreon, where you can ask questions of Mac, along with lots of other stuff, like two full macroeconomics courses with notes and reading lists and all that kind of good stuff, then join us on patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Talk to you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.